Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the wake of the Second World War, four agents were critical in helping to build a new organization that we now know as the CIA. Adelaide Hawkins, Mary Hutchinson, Eloise Page and Elizabeth Sudmeyer were called the wise gals by their male colleagues because of their sharp sense of humour and their even quicker intelligence. But they were not your stereotypical femme fatale of the spy novels. They were smart, courageous, daring, brave and groundbreaking agents at the top of their class. I'm your host, James Rogers, and as part of our special month-long mini-series on the CIA, I've invited the New York Times best-selling author, Nathalia Holt, onto the podcast. Now, Nathalia is the author of a new book, Wise Gals, The Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage. And by using her first-hand interviews with past and present CIA officials and declassified government documents, she helps us to uncover the stories of these four remarkable agents. Enjoy. Hi, Nathalia. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. That is good to hear and great to have you on the podcast. Now, I should let you know that this month is our special CIA month and we've got a real mix of old controversies like the numerous CIA coups and assassinations and a bunch of new cutting-edge histories as well, like the rise of the CIA drone programme during the Reagan years. And I would say that what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of both. It's a familiar period of history. We're talking about the Cold War, but it's a fascinating new layer that has been previously neglected. And this is, of course, the never-before-told story of the Wise Girls, the influential female spies in the precarious early days of the CIA who transformed the future of espionage. And as you can tell, I've lifted that straight from your book. So tell us, Nathalia, who were the Wise Girls? The Wise Girls were a group of women who served as intelligence officers during World War II and then continued on building the CIA and working for the agency for decades on a wide variety of operations. Their work played a critical role in preventing war and they were stationed all over the globe. These are women that really believed in one another as well. They gathered together, they tried to fight for the role of women at the agency as well as having just these varied and interesting careers. So your book focuses in on four of those key figures. Now, were these the first four women to be recruited by the CIA? 
Actually, there were so many women that were recruited by the CIA. And the reason for this is because of a man named Bill Donovan, who I'm sure you've heard of. He's the father of American intelligence. And during World War II, when he was building the OSS, or Office of Strategic Services, he specifically recruited a large number of women. And his belief here was that a diverse workforce would translate to better results in intelligence collection. And so he brought people from all different kinds of backgrounds. And so I really saw that when I was researching this group of officers, because they came from small towns in South Dakota or cities. Some of them were mothers, some of them were divorced. They just had such a range of experiences in what they knew, the languages that they were experienced in, and also what they brought to their operations. And so by doing this during World War II, what we see is that when these women continued and were brought into the CIA and played this role in its early formation, that they brought these strengths with them. And so because of that, I decided to tell the stories of four women, all of whom just have these fascinating histories in where they came from and what they were able to do. And really what they were able to accomplish is very unexpected, especially for women in the 1940s and 50s. Well, let's begin. Let's make our way through these key pivotal figures in CIA history. Tell us about Adelaide Hawkins. Adelaide Hawkins was a high school graduate. She was from a very small town in the South. She was the kind of woman that people didn't expect a lot from, and she knew that. She was very aware when she went to Washington, D.C., that people weren't expecting her to accomplish much. She was a mom of three kids, and she becomes a single mom when her husband divorces her and basically abandons the family. She's working at the OSS, so Bill Donovan hires her, and she has this incredible skill in organizing communication, breaking codes, and in general being able to control what is this kind of wild group of people that are working in the message center of the OSS. And so she becomes chief of the message center. And this is just the beginning of her career. She ends up having a long career working overseas, serving during World War II, and then not retiring until the late 70s. So she ushers in this whole technological age at the CIA. She's one of the first people to bring in IBMs into the agency. And so it was just such a pleasure to get to really dig into the many operations she was part of. But it was also fun to talk about what it was like to be a single working mom in the 1950s, especially because when I was interviewing her son, I realized that he knew almost nothing about his mother's career. She had never revealed to her family anything about her work. It wasn't until after her death that her son even realized that she was part of the CIA. And he certainly had no idea that she had reached such a high level. This is a woman that ended up being head of covert communications at the CIA, played an important role, of course, in many operations. But he had no idea, even though you know they grew up all together in the same house. And here she was flying off to Brussels and to London, and he'd had no idea that she was going to any of those places. So Adelaide cuts her teeth during the Second World War and gets that mission experience there. What do we know about the missions that she was involved in in the CIA during the Cold War? 
She played an important role in technology development during the Cold War and communications. And so what she primarily worked in, she was a liaison that worked with the CIA and with the NSA, and she worked with satellite development as well as spy plane communications. And so you can imagine that her expertise was really needed during some very critical moments in the Cold War. She also worked closely with another woman in the book named Eloise Page, uh, who was a very powerful woman at the CIA. And so the two of them worked in scientific development and communications. Um, And so there are some great moments where they're working together and they're getting data from Cuba and from the Soviets and trying to piece it all together to understand what's happening, what missiles are being developed. So some really exciting moments in the book. Was the CIA a progressive agency in terms of gender rights and maternity cover during this period? I mean, what was it that attracted women to work for the CIA? The CIA is interesting in terms of the number of women that worked for it because it had such a history of having women as part of the agency because of World War II. And this is unlike other military branches in the United States, where you had women that served during World War II, but then for the most part were shut out after the war and those branches were closed down. But what's different about this group of women is they continued and they were able to keep rising in the ranks at the CIA. However, as you can imagine, it wasn't easy to be a woman in this position in the 1950s. And in 1953, this group of women were particularly upset because they weren't being given the pay raises and promotions they'd earned. So essentially, they were doing the work of these higher ranking officers, operations officers, but they were only being paid at a lower level. And so in 1953, you have this pivotal moment where Alan Dulles is brought in as the new head of the CIA. And Dulles himself is not unexpected. He was known at the agency. Everyone expected him to fill this role. But when he's sworn in as CIA director, this group of women decide to do something completely unusual. And that is they basically swarm him with questions. They ask him, what are you going to do as CIA director about the role of women at the agency? How can you increase the professionalism and roles and promotions that women are getting at the CIA? And they just keep questioning him. And this is during a swearing in ceremony for a CIA director. I mean, such a thing was just not heard of even today, but especially in 1953. And really to Dulles's credit, even though he is taken off guard by all of these questions, he says that he is going to do everything in his power to ensure that discrimination against women is stopped. And so to this end, the women, along with Dulles, formed what is known very jokingly in the agency as the petticoat panel. And this is a group of women who decide to really investigate the work that women are doing at the CIA and what they're being paid for. And so they get access to all of the records so that they can prove statistically that women are not getting paid as much as men. To us today, of course, this just sounds reasonable. I mean, of course, women weren't being paid as much in 1953. But at the time, this was a big deal. And when they ushered in their report to the higher ups at the CIA, the response 
was just cutting. It was everything that you might expect. Basically, the men there said, what do these women expect? That they're going to get all of this money, that they're going to get the same treatment as men, and said many, many horrible things about the role of women. And so I document all of this in the book by having the transcripts of their meetings. And it's just infuriating when you read it and realize how these women were being treated. But it's really to their credit that then after this petticoat panel, this group of women, and it's these four women I describe in the book who are all on the panel, and they're all together in Washington, D.C. at this time, even though for the most part they were stationed across the globe. But they happen to be together in D.C. for this panel. And they decide that after the failures of the panel, that they are really going to work together and change the role of women. And so to do this, they begin hiring and bringing in as many women as they can, as well as rising in the ranks themselves. Amazing. So they lay the foundations for change, not through the the bureaucratic structures are already in place because there is a quite steeped hierarchy there, a patriarchy. And so they start spearheading change themselves. That's exactly right. And it's really made the agency what it is today. The CIA is half women and, of course, even has a woman at its helm, Avril Haines, who's the current director of intelligence. Well, take us through some of these other remarkable figures from this period in history. How about we move to Mary Hutchinson? Mary Hutchinson is such a wonderful character. She's such a pleasure to write about because she left such detailed journals and diaries and letters all about her experiences. And even though at the time she had to keep her work secret, there's so much of her in these diaries and letters that really reveal what she was thinking and feeling. And she even kept a very close log of all the books she was reading. So she, like these other women, served during World War II she had a PhD in archaeology, and so when she applied to the CIA, she was expecting to get a high-up officer-level position because of her education, because she was fluent in four languages, and because of her service in World War II. And so she was shocked when the man that was interviewing her offered her a secretary position. And she said, no, that's not acceptable. You have to do better than this. She was very blunt with him. And because of this, she was then hired as an officer and sent to Germany. Now, she was married to another CIA officer, and the two of them spent their career across the globe. They were stationed in Germany for most of their life, but they also spent time in Japan during the Cold War. And she played an important role in building an alliance with Ukraine. And this took place right after World War II. And she was working with a secret agent that she was trying to develop how to gain more intelligence on their Soviet operations. And so with this one man, the two of them together decided to approach a Ukrainian group. And it's really because of this, of course, that we have the relationship with Ukraine that we do today, because her work over the decades working with this group of men and women really built this alliance and, and formed. Um, it's, it's just an interesting story of how she was able to form this web of double agents that she then used to gain intelligence, particularly on biological weapons and other weaponry in Soviet Ukraine during the Cold War. So her major success was setting up this 
massive network and getting the cutting-edge intel on the weapons that the Soviet Union held. That's vital for the US to know during this pivotal Cold War balance of power arms race period. Yes, that's right. And, you know, she wasn't alone, of course. There was a large group of officers who were working on this. And another woman, Elizabeth Sedmeyer, who I'm sure we'll get to in a minute, was also critical in forming a network of double agents and using these spy networks to get intelligence. Well, was it not incredibly difficult during this period? Not only, of course, because you've got counter-agents, double agents, espionage going on on all sides, and I'm sure it is an incredibly dangerous job. But you've also got the fact that the British have been compromised, and your intelligence sharing with the British at the same time. Do they get involved in this at all? Are there any repercussions on their work? Yes, there absolutely are. And this is because when we look at American intelligence during these early post-World War II years, the Americans were really relying on the British. They absolutely were. American intelligence was so new, it was so inexperienced, and we see over and over again that they're making mistakes. And I document the mistakes this group of women made, and there are many slip-ups, there's there's all kinds of problems that they have. And so they're really relying on their counterparts and on their colleagues to get them through. So when we have this collapse and we have all these issues with British intelligence, it affects the Americans. And what we see is that then these CIA officers end up really taking the helm for many of these operations that at the beginning they were just helping with, that they were really auxiliary to. And in fact, there's many instances where we see that British intelligence is dismissive of the Americans, especially in the beginning. They're, they don't even want them there because they feel like, oh, these amateurs are just going to mess up our operations. Why should we have them as part of the conversation at all? But there's this shift that happens in the Cold War where the Americans finally do come up to speed and then take the helm of some, some major operations. And so because the British have been compromised, there are gaps in the system that are then filled by the Americans and specifically these pioneering women. Yes, women play such an important role here because they were not usually suspected of being a spy. It was such an advantage that these women had is that they were able to move through these countries and they were seen as wives or as embassy workers or as secretaries and their real role was never recognized. So it gave them this incredible advantage that many of their male colleagues simply did not have. On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we're here to spoil you with the biggest names. Chinggis Khan, the thing that really galvanised his wars of conquest was his belief that he had been given a mandate to have dominion over the entire planet. We explore new archaeological finds. After the Viking Age, lots of medieval artefacts coming out of the site as well. And delve into the lives of those you might never have heard of. He's not a bad and evil king like King John. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. From surviving everyday life in the Middle Ages to dynasty-shattering events. Gone Medieval is the place to quench your thirst for history. Subscribe now to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so, so that was Mary Hutchinson, and, and you mentioned Elizabeth Sudmeyer. Maybe take us into her story. Elizabeth Sudmeyer grew up on a reservation in South Dakota. She then served in World War II, like all of these other women did, and then entered CIA officer training. So this was called JOT, or Junior Officer Training, and she was the first woman to enter this program. She had an advantage in already knowing several languages, And JOT was an intense program, just like today, where CIA officers have to train under these very intense conditions. Elizabeth certainly found it overwhelming to be part of this group and, of course, to be the only woman in there. And when she finished, she was sent to Baghdad. And here she had a very long career. And she had so many advantages here, as I was saying about the advantages that women had often in the field, working as officers and working undercover. Liz Sudmeyer certainly had these because she was able to pose as a secretary. Sometimes she even posed as a teenage daughter going to the movies. She had all kinds of different roles and disguises that she used. But she had the advantage of because of her dark hair, she was able to blend into her environment very well. And what she did in Baghdad was form a spy network that none of her male colleagues had access to. And that's because she gained her spies from a tailor shop and from a beauty salon. And so using these resources, she was able to cast a web across the country and gain an enormous amount of information. And so what Liz did is she would go into this beauty salon or into the dress shop and she would just make friends. She would make casual conversation with the women in there. And she would learn what their husbands did, what their brothers did, what their sons did. And when she identified women who had male family members who were working with the Soviets, she then befriended those families specifically, carefully worked up a relationship, 
and then approached them and asked them to work for the United States. And she had such success in getting these spies to work for her. They would then perform dead drops where these men would leave the secret plans to Soviet fighter jets, as well as all kinds of other weaponry in special locations, in cafes and in movie theaters. Liz would then get these materials, bring them back to the CIA station in Baghdad, copy them all furiously so that they could be sent to Washington, D.C., as well as translate the important bits that were in Russian because she was able to speak uh, and read it and understand it herself, and then bring these documents back to the men. And so she, you can imagine the kind of nerve and the kind of courage that this type of work required. Um, and it became even more intense when Baghdad experienced a revolution uh, in 1957. And at this time, there was so much intense hatred of Westerners by the coup leaders in the country that the CIA station was immediately evacuated and every Westerner basically fled for their life, except for Liz. She was the only CIA officer to remain in the country. And she did this, she stayed undercover because she wanted to protect their spy network and she knew if she left, it would all crumble to nothing. And so Liz stayed in that country and took an enormous risk to maintain those connections and to continue feeding intelligence to Washington. And her work was very essential at that point in preventing war in the region. Well, Nathalia, what did she do during that period? Because she no longer had the guise, the ruse of being a secretary because all Western personnel had been removed from the country. So did she just lay low? Did she hide with the family she'd made friends with? How did she keep her cover? Yes, she was able to basically just blend in with the families she knew and with her friends in the area. And she was very careful. She couldn't tell anyone in her family back home about it. Um, and she also couldn't tell the man that she loved. She was engaged to an Italian man whom she had hoped to marry, but who sadly she ended up having to break off her engagement with because the CIA did not allow officers to marry foreign nationals. And this was just so heartbreaking for her, especially because her boss at that time, a man named Arthur Callahan, who was really pivotal in her life and who really fought for recognition and promotion for Liz, but he himself was married to a foreign national. He was married to a Syrian woman. And so for Liz, it was just so heartbreaking that the rules that bent for some of the men of the agency couldn't bend for her. So you can imagine the sacrifices she made, not only risking her life, but also her love and those connections with her family as well. Um, so that it was definitely a, a terrifying period for her. Um, and she exhibited so much bravery that her boss ended up nominating her for the Intelligence Medal of Merit, which is this high-ranking medal in the CIA. And at first in Washington, when they received this request, they were just aghast. They said, no, that's impossible. There's no way that a woman could possibly have achieved this. And they refused the request. In fact, they refused it for years. And it really took Arthur Callahan fighting for Liz and saying, no, she deserves this medal. She risked her life for them to finally give it to her five years later. Wow. And I assume she was the first woman to get this medal. She was. And, you know, the interesting thing with medals in the CIA is that they're presented in a ceremony. So I have the picture of Liz getting this medal. 
but the recipient doesn't get to keep it. It's then kept in a safe in the CIA. So you you receive the medal and then you just hand it right back over. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, you have to send us over that picture so I can <laughs> I can share it all over Twitter when we promote this podcast. That is incredible, and what an amazing story! Sacrificing your your happiness, risking your life for duty and to serve your country, but also I guess to protect, like you say, to protect those friends and networks that she had made over that period. Now, I think that. Liz is going to be a hard one to follow, but tell us more about Eloise Page. Oh, Eloise Page is such an amazing story because here's a woman that served as a secretary to William Donovan in World War II and then was able to rise in the ranks after the war and become the most powerful woman at the CIA. She became chief of scientific and technical operations, and she played a role in a huge number of operations, including working with Elizabeth in Baghdad, where she was essential in in getting that intelligence and handing it over to Washington and analyzing what it meant. Um, So Eloise has a great story in what she was able to accomplish. But the funny thing about her is that she's just not the kind of person that anyone would suspect was a spy. She was this very small woman. She was petite. Uh, She came from a Southern family that was very proper. So this is a woman that wore white gloves and heels. She always wanted to dress a certain way. And then in the 1970s, she really started to push for larger roles. For a long time, she had wanted to serve as chief of a CIA station. And she had been offered this job before, but every time she'd received an offer, she'd felt like the country she was being offered just wasn't enough of a challenge. And then the CIA station chief in Greece was assassinated. And this was a horrible tragedy, of course. And it was a a very terrifying moment for the CIA, particularly in Greece, where the officers there were now being hunted down and were in great danger from a terrorist group that was moving throughout Europe. And Eloise Page was offered this position and she took it. She decided that here was the challenge she was looking for. And so she moved to Greece. She became the CIA station chief there and then began hunting terrorists across the continent. And this served an important role later on for the CIA in learning how terrorist networks form and looking at how cells and related groups operate. And so it it served as an important learning opportunity in the later years for the CIA. And of course, for Eloise, it was certainly a a moment that had its terrors. She definitely had to be careful. She wore a gun on her hip and took incredible risks. Um, But she, she, like all of these women, really believed in what they were doing. And these were women that were essentially trying to prevent war. And they were successful in doing so for most of these decades. Which terrorist organization was this, Nathalia? Because there was there a calculation made that they might not target a, a woman who is in charge? Was there was there a, a gendered decision-making process as to, as to why she was offered this role? No. She, you know, this terrorist organization was 17N, and it took place during a rise in these small terrorist organizations that happened in Europe in the 1970s. And it was quite difficult to track them down because they were in these small familial groups. But they would easily have targeted a woman as well as a man. And the reason Eloise was brought in was because she was that skilled. Remember that by 1973, she had been working 
for the agency for, my goodness, 30 years. This is a woman who had had such experience, worked on a number of different continents, had been part of so many different operations and had really proven herself in the field. You know, she was absolutely the right choice for this. And, uh, she, you know, she was a woman that you wouldn't think to look at her, but she wasn't afraid to really get in there and to take risks and to get her hands dirty. As you said, she wore a gun on her hip. She was literally ready to go shooting from the hip. Now, <laughs> these are the four women that are kind of touched upon in great detail in the book. But I know there's a, a bit more of a, a hidden character, one who, who shouldn't be hidden from the history of the CIA. And this is Jane Burrell, the, the true pioneer behind all of these women. Tell us a little about Jane. Jane is such an amazing woman. This is a woman who served in World War II. And she had never expected to be working overseas. In her 1941 application to the US government, there was a line that read, if you're willing to travel, specify occasionally, constantly, you know, it had this kind of range. And she had picked occasionally, hoping for the very least amount of travel. But it didn't work out that way. And she was sent to Normandy during World War II. And this is really because of her skills. She was fluent in multiple languages. She was educated. She was a woman that never had trouble fitting in. And so in France, she worked very closely with British intelligence. And this was during that period when American intelligence was so new and so inexperienced that they really leaned on their colleagues to learn the ways of how things were done. And so Jane was working on getting German agents, identifying them, tracking them down, and then approaching them and convincing them to work for the Allies. Well, well, hang on one second, Nathalia, because I think we need to clarify this a little bit. Are you saying that she was behind enemy lines? This is before D-Day, before yes. the Normandy landings? Absolutely, yes. So she's, she's in there working, risking her life with the SOE? Yes, she was. Yes, she was part of a group that was known as X2, and this was an elite group of the OSS these were officers that were really considered the best of the best by U.S. Uh, intelligence standards. And so they were the ones that were working very closely with the British during this time. And her role was to try and turn or identify and turn German operatives or just to identify? And turn them. Wow. Yes, identify and turn them. And she was very successful in doing this. And so I document her work in the book where she was able to take a group of men, and specifically I tell the story of Juan Frutos, who is a German intelligence officer who Jane identified and then convinced to work for the Allies. And she had him using his radio to send messages back to the Germans that would give them completely false information about where the Allies were and where their landing sites were. And she did this very carefully. She had these messages build up over months. She spent a long time on this because originally the messages were so short they were afraid to lengthen them. So they did this very carefully so that the Germans would not suspect that the messages that they were receiving were actually written by the Allies. And you know, even then, they were so afraid that they were going to be caught. And of course, that their sources, that, that these German agents that they had turned, would end up being caught as well. 
but it ended up being incredibly successful. And what we see is that during several large military operations, German U-boots and troops ended up moving away from American landing sites because of the information that was being sent by Juan Frutos and other agents that Jane was working with. So part of the success of Operation Overlord is down to Jane Burrell. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's it's incredible, of course, how many people were part of these operations. But when you look at their individual stories, it's incredibly inspiring what they were able to sacrifice and how they were able to work just during incredibly difficult conditions. Uh, but what's interesting about Jane is that then, you know, even after the war, she decided to continue and she divorced her husband. They had just grown apart during the war. They were stationed in different places and she had fallen in love with intelligence. This was what she decided that she was going to spend her entire career on um, and she definitely wanted to continue. And after the war, there was this real fear that the Germans were hiding treasure across Europe as a means to return to power. Yes, we've all heard about these mythical hoard of Nazi gold stashed all over Europe. And in some cases, they were certainly true alongside collections of art and valuables. Yes, that's right. And so that's exactly what Jane and her group of colleagues were working on. And so what they were doing is they were interrogating the German officers that they had found and trying to learn about where these mythical hoards were. And Jane had some real success with this. There was one man that she was interrogating, a German that they codenamed Flush, for reasons that you are probably about to guess. And he told them of a hoard of gold that was in a castle in the Italian Alps. And so Jane and another colleague go to this castle. They bring this German officer with them, and he leads them to this spot in the woods outside the castle, where under the trees, they find bags of gold, bags of gold coins. It is an incredible stash. It's an immense treasure. I think they counted 2,162 coins worth millions in today's money. And it was just such, you can imagine what a thrill this was to find this gold. They brought it back to the station, counted it all, documented it and continued their search for treasure. So he was most certainly flush. It's as simple as that. The guy had bags <laughs> of Nazi gold. That is incredible. What happens to that sort of bounty when it comes into a CIA field station? Yes, you know, they had many different, of course, kinds of treasure come in, as you mentioned, artworks as well. And there was some fear that people were going to take advantage of this and that artworks went missing. And so it was important that Jane and her officers work very closely with the monuments men. And they did this to ensure that everything was being tracked and put into the right places. But of course, I'm sure there are things that went missing along the way. But it, you know, it's interesting when you look at the correspondence between the CIA, this is of course the early forerunner to the CIA at that point, and the monuments men, because you can tell that the CIA were often reluctant to share their information. They were afraid to give too much. But we see that Jane worked very closely with them. Because of the German agents that she had tracked down during the war, she knew several art dealers that she had worked with during World War II and gotten to work for the Allies. So her work with the Monuments Men was very essential in being able to track down certain paintings and tapestries across Europe. And in fact, it's that work that ultimately led to her death. Oh, okay. So does she go on to join the CIA? When, when does her untimely death come about? 
So she died on a plane from Brussels where she was working with the Monuments Men. She was giving them information about a man named George Spitz, who was an art dealer. And so she was testifying about his involvement and what he had done with the Allies and trying to give them information so they could track down certain artwork. She was then returning to the Paris CIA station when her plane began experiencing engine trouble. And it's a dark, stormy night in Paris. Rain's coming down and the plane, unfortunately, pummels and ends up exploding on the runway. Everyone on board that jet dies that night, including Jane Burrell. And because the CIA had been formed only six months earlier, this makes her the first CIA officer to die in service to our country. Right. Wow. And one thing we know about CIA officers who die in the service of their country, Nathalia, is that they have a star placed on that wall down in Langley. Does she have a star on that wall? She does not. And this is a horrible injustice that I'm trying to rectify. It's taken me years, of course, to accumulate all the documentation to prove that Jane was on duty when her plane crashed. And she absolutely was. There's plenty of documentation from the CIA and from the State Department, as well as from the Monuments Men, to prove that she was on an operation at that time. And you might think that it's because it was a plane crash that makes her ineligible, but that's actually not true. There's many men and women who have died on plane crashes, both commercial and private, and in all different sorts of countries and conditions that have still gotten stars on the CIA Memorial Wall. So it's important that we get this star for Jane Burrell and honor the sacrifice that she made. Do we have any theories as to why she's not included on the wall? Is it just because the CIA was such a fledgling organisation that this hadn't started up yet and it's just been forgotten from history? Well, I'm hopeful that because of the evidence I've gathered that I will eventually get the CIA to include her. It's difficult with the bureaucracy. You know, it's you know these big government bureaucracies. There's so many different offices, so many people to talk to. And some of the people I've talked to have displayed blatant sexism. They've said, oh, well, there's no, you know, there's no proof that these documents are real and they might have just been forged for her family. And there's no evidence of that at all. In fact, we know that these are real documents. They're from the archives in the U.S. and uh, in the U.K. You know, I think that if she were a man, she would already have a star, sadly. And so it's, it's important that we honor her and get her her placement in the memorial wall. And surely, perhaps more than most, I mean, it's tragic of anyone who's to die on duty as, as part of CIA operations. But this is someone who genuinely, in their own way, helped turn the tide of the war. So any of our listeners out there all around the world, if you've got your contacts in the CIA, get out your little black books and send some messages out there to push for Jane Burrell to be included on the wall. Nathalia, thank you so much for bringing this history to light. I'm so excited to read your new book. You've got to tell us the title and where we can get it. It's called Wise Gals, The Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage. And it's available where books are sold and it'll be coming out in the UK in early February. Wonderful. Well, we'll put a link to that in our show notes. And you are, of course, always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much for having me.
thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.